Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this week I'm stepping aside to hand the show over again to my colleague Chris Maltby. In the past, Chris has tracked for us the history of the Berkeley free speech movement, and more recently he tracked the misuse of California public records law. But today, Chris has taken us on an adventure through the 20th century to explore the rise of comic books and comic book censorship. I hope you enjoy. This episode of So To Speak will be investigating the moral panic surrounding comic books in the late 1940s and 1950s. To do so, I interviewed author David Haydew, who wrote The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America. My name is David Haydew, and I'm a, a writer of books, mostly nonfiction, although I've written one novel. I'm a cultural critic and a music critic as well. And I teach at Columbia University. I teach a seminar in arts and culture. I do some work in music myself. And that's me. Comics have a unique and almost immeasurable place of importance in American cultural history because they were one of the first forms of popular art to be geared for young people and originally made mostly by people who were quite young. They, they did so working outside of like formal oversight. So it was people in their late teens and early 20s, a, a lot of people who thought of themselves as uh, disenfranchised or outsiders in one way or another, kind of social outcasts or misfits. A lot of people who are members of ethnic minority groups gravitated to comics because it was a place welcome to them and open to them in a place where they could express themselves without a lot of judgment and without a lot of oversight. I also interviewed Bob Corn Revere. My name is Bob Corn Revere. I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I'm a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine in Washington, D.C., work on a variety of uh, First Amendment issues and have written about the comic book panic in a book that I have coming out later this year. The title is The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, The First Amendment and the Censor's Dilemma. The comic book didn't even exist as a literary form until the early 1930s, and they began as really just compilations of comic strips from newspapers. But they really took hold uh, in the 1930s during the midst of the Depression, and there were more readers for comics in the mid-1930s than there were people who read regular magazines, went to movies, or listened to radio. It really is something that took America by storm. And in the late 1930s, then superhero comics began to emerge. Now, many of the comics also dealt with issues like you know, crime stories, detective stories, and horror was another popular genre. 
But Superman appeared in 1938, uh, Batman in 1939, and then, as we all know now, a long list of other characters and other stories were being told. But by 1941, there were 15 to 18 million comic books being sold every month. Uh, it was phenomenal. Given the immense popularity of comic books, and the free and somewhat irreverent storytelling many of them adopted, criticism was only a matter of time. Sterling North was a writer and the, uh, a writer of, of children's books. Many people may remember, at least people my age may remember, his book Rascal about a pet raccoon. But he, he wrote a column called National Disgrace uh, in the Chicago Daily News that in the words of today, went viral. Uh, there were something like 25 million copies of this opinion piece that were requested around the country. And basically he took on comics as being vile and uh, undermining the intelligence of America's youth. And more than that, being dangerous, that they were tended to encourage kids to become juvenile delinquents. Now, of course, he distinguished this from comic strips because he wrote for newspapers, uh, but said that uh, no respectable newspaper would accept the kinds of drivel written in, in comic books and that it was really, as he put it, a national disgrace. He was the first of the sort of public intellectuals to come forward and to begin what became a campaign against comic books. Sterling North's 1940 article would lead to another prominent article entitled Puddles of Blood, which cited Frederick Wortham and was published in Time magazine in 1948. Although these highly critical, noteworthy articles were published eight years apart, there was plenty of anti-comics activity during the interim. David Haydu. In point of fact, the criticism of comics predated Wortham. Before Wortham seemed to discover comics or published a word about them or spoke out about them publicly, Catholic schools and the Catholic Church were severely critical of comics. And to the degree that sermons were published for priests to, to give on Sunday, at Sunday Mass, denouncing comics, and calling comics sinful and banning them from the homes of Catholic families. And many of the first public protests and acts against comics, public burnings of comic books, took place in uh, Catholic schools. I'm not saying this in, with any kind of anti-Catholic sentiment. I'm, I was raised as a Catholic myself. There's none of that in what I'm saying. Just historically, that's where some of the anti-comics dissent came from. Public acts of protest against comic books ominously took the form of community bonfires, often organized by children at the encouragement of adults. Bob Corn Revere. It was one of the things where the adults were really behind it, but they would encourage kids, you know, if you want to be a really good kid, then you'll, you'll help stamp out this menace. And so the uh, adults would sort of stand by as kids organized their own comic book bonfires. There were some places where they would hold mock trials of comic book characters. They would put Superman on trial and, and, and so on. They would even get the 
in some communities, the local fire department involved, where they would send trucks up and down the streets and kids would bring out their comics and then uh, convene in a place to, uh, to burn the comic books. And it was one of those things where burnings of books by Nazis was not that removed in, in, in memory, right? It just happened just a few short years earlier. So the adults were sort of careful to stay behind the scenes. They didn't want it to appear they were actually really involved. And then many of the anti-comics crusaders, like Dr. Wordham, sort of publicly appreciated that people were, were doing this and said, this just proves kids would rather burn comic books than read them. There were 15 or 20 that I have records of all over over the country. A great many in the Midwest and uh, Wisconsin and the Midwestern states, which had pockets of conservatism in rural communities, but also in upstate New York, uh, Binghamton, New York, up in central New York, the Syracuse area, California, the South, all over the country, mostly in rural communities, but often in suburban communities as well. They were widespread in the late 1940s, and the criticism against comics was pervasive. By 1948, there were over 100 acts of legislation on the books in states and communities around the country restricting or banning the sale of various kinds of comic books. Comics and their content were being outlawed in the United States. It was staggering. That's absolutely staggering. Despite or perhaps because of the heavy criticism by detractors, comics of the crime and horror genres gained in popularity. Before long, the age of comics readers shifted and comics readers got a little bit older and comics artists and writers got a little bit older. The character of the comics shifted pretty significantly so that by the mid to late 1940s, in addition to uh, superhero comics, which were mostly tales of kind of valiance and honor and patriotism and doing good, a whole new set of genre comics emerged that were darker crime comics, horror comics, science fiction comics that told more kind of lurid stories that appealed to older readers, you know, teenagers and young adults kind of trying to figure out their place in the world and trying to figure out how the world worked. So there was a kind of a cathartic quality to a whole a new form of comics that came up in the uh, mid to late 1940s. The chief turn-of-the-century critic of comic strips and dime novels was New Yorker and anti-vice crusader Anthony Comstock. In 1873, Comstock founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and also used his position as the U.S. Postal Inspector to censor what he considered lewd literature. A law he helped pass in 1884 was challenged in the Supreme Court in 1948. Bob Korn Revere Winters versus New York is a very key uh, Supreme Court case uh, decided, as you say, in 1948. And it was 
one of the first to extend the protections of the First Amendment beyond just expositions of ideas, uh, political doctrine or so on, to include entertainment. Now, oddly enough, the statute was a New York statute against publications that amassed stories of crime. It was adopted in 1884 in direct response to another anti-vice crusader of that time, Anthony Comstock, who at the time was running campaigns against things like dime novels, which were, again, these cheap paperbacks that would talk about cowboys and Indians and criminals and, you know, exciting detective stories, things like that. And at the time, that was the current moral panic where anti-vice crusaders would say, this is turning our children into juvenile delinquents. Uh, This is all, uh, you know, really something that should be stamped out. And so in response to those calls, uh, New York responded by by adopting this law against publishing stories of crime. (laughs) Oddly enough, it's one of the things that Sterling North tried to distinguish when he was writing his piece, A National Disgrace, saying, oh, this is very different from before when you would just have these harmless dime novels. This is really serious. These are comic books uh, trying to say this isn't, I'm not just uh, a scaremonger like those other guys, but this is serious. So anyway, 1948, the Supreme Court takes up a case where a bookseller in New York had sold a a book that had stories of crimes and and photos of crime scenes and and photos of the criminals involved. And it uh, basically said it is too difficult to draw a line between information and entertainment. What is one man's entertainment is another man's doctrine. And so it extended the protections of the First Amendment to these kinds of stories, saying that, you know, it is just too difficult for the court to try and if it's going to allow a prosecution of certain kinds of stories and fiction and things like that, that is going to bleed over and and, uh, restrict ideas as well. Dr. Frederick Wortham, also pronounced Wortham, picked up where Anthony Comstock left off. He took on as his own personal crusade, trying to regulate and crush the comic book industry. Now, he had his bona fides as an intellectual. He was a trained psychiatrist. He had risen to prominence, actually championing the civil rights movement. Some of his work was cited by the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, But once he took up the mantle of going after comic books, he sort of put his crusade in a primary role and his scholarship in a secondary role. He was published widely in the popular press, largely in women's magazines, Family Circle, Reader's Digest, Ladies Home Journal, railing about comic books. And largely what he would do is tell, quote, case studies, talking about one young woman came into his office and told about how comic books had destroyed her life. And uh, a, a young lad came in and said that his life of crime began with comic books. It was virtually identical to the kinds of stories that Anthony Comstock would compile and talk about uh, the effects of dime novels. But anyway, Wertham became very prominent because of his credentials. Uh, He was consulted by the New York legislature in attempts to pass a statewide prohibition on crime and horror comics. He then became a consultant to committees of of the U.S. Senate who were beginning to look into the issue of comic books and whether or not they contributed to juvenile delinquency. And as a result, again, had quite an influence. He, coincidentally, with hearings that occurred later in 1954, he published his book, Seduction of the Innocent, 
which in which he basically compiled and expanded on the ideas that he'd been publishing in these popular articles. And that was really the centerpiece of what became the political movement in Washington to cast an eye on, on these, these comics and whether or not they had a detrimental effect and needed to be regulated. It's like the line uh, that Bill Murray has in Ghostbusters, where someone begins to question him when he's doing electroshock experiments, and he says, back off, man, I'm a scientist. Uh, he, uh, when Wyrdom appeared in Congress to testify in front of the comic book hearings in 1954, uh, he wore his white lab coat just to say, I'm a doctor, so listen to me. U.S. senators looking to capitalize on the moral outrage being directed at comic books started convening committees to investigate the burgeoning art form. Dr. Wortham was invited to testify as an expert in psychiatry at the 1954 U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. It was years later, it was early 2000s when finally his papers became available and another researcher looked through them and found out that he had no data, that he had actually, many of the patients he claimed were his patients were actually children he had never talked to who were you know, patients of, of, of others. He would combine and embellish some of the case histories and the stories that he would tell. His work has been thoroughly discredited. Uh, as I say, his role as an advocate took first place and uh, as a doctor, second place. Look, Senate hearings are always great political theater. And that was something that was really becoming clear at the dawn of television. Senator Estes Kefauver from uh, Tennessee had political ambitions. He had risen to national prominence uh, a few years before in having uh, hearings on organized crime. And he made the cover of Time magazine. He was being discussed as a presidential candidate. And so the notion of being able to use these platforms as political theater uh, and as a boon to a political career and, and a political campaign were becoming well known at the time. And it coincided with what was developing after 1948 as this crusade against comic books. Now, the Senate had convened earlier hearings. The Senate convened on this topic in 1951. At which point they reached no conclusions because even people like J. Edgar Hoover would uh, submit testimony saying that there are many causes for crime. Uh, I don't know that comic books really contribute to it. And you had municipal court judges saying the same thing and so on. And so the Senate reached no conclusions about that, which sorely disappointed uh, Dr. Wortham, who had been a consultant for that, uh, that investigation, but didn't submit any testimony of his own. And so when it came to the second round of hearings in 1954, that's when he published his book. There was a big promotional campaign. It was a, a selection for the Book of the Month Club. It was touted on billboards uh, nationwide. And so by then, political momentum for those hearings became much more irresistible. I don't know that having an industry code was the express goal of the committee when it uh, started the hearings. But this is the kind of compromise that we've seen numerous times throughout history. So, for example, when various organizations 
uh, complained about sex in cinema in the late 1920s and early 1930s. You had political forces aligned that led Hollywood to adopt the Hayes Code, uh, which put industry in control of reviewing films before they would be released, and essentially a pledge to sanitize the product, sanitize movies, to forestall the possibility of regulation. This was the same dynamic that occurred in the 1950s with the hearings that then led to the comic book industry adopting uh, the Comic Magazine Association. Technically, it was called the Comics Magazine Association of America, or CMAA. Which had its comic book code. But one of the things that is sort of a balancing factor on both sides is that when the Senate conducted hearings in the 1950s, they knew because of Winters versus New York that any legislation that they would adopt would likely be struck down as unconstitutional. Various communities like Los Angeles had adopted uh, comic book regulations that had been struck down in the state courts. They were drawing substantially on the Supreme Court decision in reaching their conclusions. The Senate in the earlier hearings had backed off of legislation because they were aware of this precedent. New York had adopted, the the legislature had adopted comic book legislation, uh, but Thomas Dewey had vetoed it on constitutional grounds. So going into the hearings, it was really quite clear that the First Amendment would not support a broad regulation of the content of comic books, but because of the political dynamic, it was still possible for the Senate to bring substantial pressure on the industry, which led to the adoption of a, quote, voluntary code. This clip shows a senator at the hearings in front of a wall of comics with a title that reads, Representative Comic Book Covers, Crime, Horror, and Weird Variety. These comic book covers that you are seeing here are a sample of what the children of the United States are reading today. 20 million copies of these comic books are pouring off the presses every single month. They are getting into the hands of children, and their contents match the covers. They are full of crime, terror, and horror. There was widespread derision of comic books and television and other mediums at the time. Listen to this interview for a popular 1955 news show with prominent U.S. Senator Estes Kefauver and the concluding plea to the viewers from the host. Senator Kefauver, what have you learned in, so far in your investigation on the subject of comic books? Paul, we had an extensive hearing in New York some months back, and we've had other hearings in other parts of the country. I was amazed to find the number of comic books being published each month in the United States. Well, what about the effect of these comic books on the children? Uh, All of our testimony from psychiatrists and uh, children themselves uh, show that it's uh, very upsetting, that it has a bad moral effect, and that it is directly responsible for a substantial amount of juvenile delinquency and child crime. Are there presently comic books in publication that you feel are harmful to children? Yes, there are still some although not as many as there used to be. The industry, you know, has appointed a czar. They have a code. Mr. Murphy is in charge of the code operation. They submit their comic books to him, and he passes on them. They are not, uh, now not supposed to show crime and horror in their comics. The host of the program, Paul Coates. 
I mentioned before that the final responsibility for the control of crime and horror comics rests with you. A few cities have already done something about them, not too many, but a few. Legislation against unfit comic books is possible. Legislation that won't interfere with the rights of a free press. Contact your city officials. Let them know how you feel about the crime and horror comics. And remember this. America is the richest country in the world. We're the world's biggest producer of goods. But our most important commodity, the one commodity we can't put a price tag on, is our children. The 24-minute show titled Confidential File was essentially a public service announcement against comic books. Remember, this was an era when there were only three channels on TV. And public defenders of the medium were few and far between. David Haydu. Comics makers never felt like they had much of a voice. Uh, they didn't have outlets to defend comics. The Most people were ignorant of comics or or cynical about comics, suspicious that comics, you know, must be the cause for all this bad behavior about young people. So the people who loved comics, cared about comics, believed in comics, had you know, had very few places to turn to to express that. Will Eisner was on the on the record in a newspaper in Philadelphia saying very early that he thought thought of comics as a literary form. Will Eisner was an American cartoonist, comic book artist, and one of the first to create a graphic novel. But very few people were defending comics. Very few people even felt like comics makers, artists, writers, felt like they could even talk to their friends about it. You know, they were embarrassed to be making comics. They were ashamed to be, to be making comics because comics were held in, in such suspicion. I ha- I, when I did my, my book, The Ten Cent Plague, I interviewed you know, over a hundred comics makers, you know, and they said, you know, you wouldn't tell anybody that you made comics because it's like saying, Oh, I'm a child molester. Oh, you know, Oh no, I'm a criminal. I'm a thief. I'm an extortionist. Cynicism about comics was so widespread. It was horrible. Given the moral panic surrounding comic books at the time, it's no wonder that regulation caught up with the comic book makers. However, the puritanical rules that followed were self-imposed. And as a survival mechanism, as a way to save themselves, the comics industry, comics publishers, united and formed an organization in 1954 called the uh, Comics Magazine Association of America that was modeled on the Hayes office in Hollywood that enforced the production code. And the first thing that the CMAA did, I mean, literally the, their, their first act, was to f- put together a code of production standards that was modeled on the Hayes Office Code, but was actually even more stringent and more severe. 41 codes strictly oversaw each comic approved by the Comics Code Authority. Genres like crime and horror were practically erased. A few of the codes are as follows. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. No magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. And just for good measure, 
Part C of the Code's general standards stated sweepingly, All elements or techniques not specifically mentioned herein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the Code, and are considered violations of good taste or decency, shall be prohibited. Bob Corn Revere Comics agreed to abide by the code, and, and the main publishers signed up for it. There had been an earlier association a few years before that had not had much buy-in by the industry and, and therefore not much of an effect. But after the 1954 hearings and you had the Comics Code Authority, then you had wide-scale buy-in by the industry, and they submitted their stories and the artwork uh, to the association to get a, quote, seal of approval. And those that got the seal, you know, could publish. Those that didn't would be in violation of the code if, if they uh, didn't accept the instructions. The effect on the industry, the economic effect on the industry, was devastating. More than 800 writers and artists lost their jobs as a result of the impact on the comic book industry. And between 1953 and 1955, the number of comic book titles plummeted by about 40%. 1955 was the first year since comic books were introduced that the number of publishers, there were no new publishers of comics beginning in 1955. And so for that period through about the mid-1960s, you had a severe depression in the industry. It drove some people out of the business entirely. One of the primary targets of Wordham and and was uh, a a witness at the Kefauver hearings was William Gaines, who was the publisher of EC Comics, uh, had a number of crime and, and horror titles and so on. And he was devastated at the hearings. They would use covers of his comic books and then force them to try and defend them. And, and it was a debacle that, that led the industry to uh, try and pull back uh, and led to the adoption of the code. But Gaines went out of the business entirely and instead created Mad Magazine and uh, became a cultural influence in a different way. Here's a clip of the testimony of comics publisher William Gaines, perhaps the only ardent defender of the art form at the Senate hearings. Two decades ago, my late father was instrumental in starting the comic magazine industry. He edited the first few issues of the first modern comic magazine, Famous Funny. Famous what? Funny. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? David Haydew. The Comics Code, the CCA, had an enormous influence for a long time, and that influence was like staggeringly destructive. (laughs) In the very early days of of the Comics Code, some comics were published that bore the marks of the censorship that the code enforced. In time, comics makers 
came to understand fully what the code required and they just made comics more and more tepid, neutered over time. But if, for a bit, for a few months, you could see the earmarks of the, of the CCA and comics came through that showed like women's, their body parts blacked out, blank spaces and word balloons, faces clearly kind of redrawn, you know, which is made like re-rendered as attractive women. You could see for a few months that the censorship was beginning. And within a, a matter of a year or two, comics just weren't the same anymore. And it drove hundreds of people out of work. Comics didn't respond to the comics code the same way that Hollywood responded to the production code. Hollywood found a way through suggestion and nuance and subtext to still communicate sexual awareness and kind of naughtiness, you know, things suggested without being expressed outright. Comics just got more and more juvenile and silly and kind of ridiculous and kind of and embarrassingly so. I think they, if comics makers had tried to embrace, you know, suggestion and nuance, they didn't necessarily have to become as, you know, juvenile and as awful. <laughs> Comics didn't have to become as juvenile and awful as they did, but that's what happened. As severe as the censorship was, and despite the compliance by comics distributors, the industry saw a shift in the 1960s. Mainstream comics saw stringent regulations, but independent publishers grew an underground following. People just started ignoring it. You know, in through the entire cultural revolution of the 1960s, uh, people were beginning to rebel against authority. And then that also happened with the emergence of underground comics uh, and comics spelled C-O-M-I-X, where you would have uh, counterculture characters and, and uh, comics with drug themes, which by the way, was one of the things on the list. Uh, <laughs> and so they began to have a real cultural influence. You also had uh, folks like Stan Lee uh, at Marvel Comics, who began to push against code in his own way as well. And so by the end of the 70s and through the 80s, you then began to see the emergence of graphic novels that ignored the code and uh, a whole bunch of different forms that uh, were really gaining in cultural influence and popularity. Not only were the censors unsuccessful in trying to tamp down this popular medium, but they were entirely discredited in the process. Frederick Wordham is, to the extent he's remembered at all, is remembered as a buffoonish character that will sometimes show up in comic books or in other popular forms. He's shown up in novels, he's shown up in plays, but uh, other than that, the general public has no idea who he was. And the comics and comic characters have flourished. I mean, Wordham really went, well, three uh, uh, DC characters were Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Superman was supposed to be a fascist, according to Wordham, and encourage disrespect for authority. He would frame his arguments against the comics industry as a personal combat between himself and Superman, 
Batman and Robin, he said, represented a homosexual fantasy. Wonder Woman encouraged lesbianism. I mean, all of these arguments were being made by Wordham. Uh, but in the end, as we know, those characters are still with us, even when Do though Dr. Wordham is not. Comic-themed movies have taken over the box office. People who enjoy these stories are completely uh, able to enjoy them in new and in different kinds of forms. The efforts to censor both the medium of comic books and the stories that were being told were completely unsuccessful. And those who tried to promote those types of censorship are no longer remembered. The Comics Code Authority steadily lost relevance over the decades. To better understand why it finally faded away in 2010, I spoke with Jeff Trexler of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. The CBLDF describes itself as a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection of the First Amendment rights of the comics art form and its community of retailers, creators, publishers, librarians, and readers. I'm Jeff Trexler, Interim Director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. I'm an attorney. I have been a professor for a long time. I've worked in the field of nonprofit organizations and corporate ethics. And it's been a real pleasure to be part of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. The Comics Code Authority was abandoned for several reasons. One was the rise of comic shops and the shift of comic book sales away from drugstores and department stores to comic shops that were largely set apart from areas where children would congregate. They were mostly places where adults would go, people with disposable income. You didn't have to have that distribution safe system be safe for children. So that puts a lot of pressure off of the need to have a seal that signals to people that these books are safe to kids. The other thing was, ironically, the rise of corporate social responsibility. Every company has its own standards. Every company will have its own rating system. It really sorted itself out. Um, you knew that there was one set of standards over here for one set of books and another set of standards over there for another. And the comics code became a way of signaling uncool. You had the uncool books over here and you had the cool books over there. And you get rid of the comics code. You have your own self-regulation system. You can have the same effect without the stigmatization of the comics code, which you know, 30, 40 years later had become, 50 years later, become obsolete. The main function, which was to put the symbol on books so they'd be safe for distribution to drugstores. You didn't really need it anymore. And if anything, it just made a book look unsaleable. Eventually, over time, it frankly didn't make sense to pay the bills to keep the comics code alive. By the time it died, it was essentially you know, a P.O. box and a phone number. So out it went. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund was founded in the mid-1980s, really a legendary publisher, Dennis Kitchen, major, you know, the center of this. There was a comic shop known as Friendly Franks. In the 80s and 90s, if you go to a comic shop, you'd see a lot of posters on the windows and sometimes inside of, uh, let's say women's costumes were not exactly modest back in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, maybe not even today, arguably, but back then, really not modest. So you have these things that are appearing in malls and they're appearing on standalone shops and they're appearing near churches and schools for crying out loud. And, and so people started seeing this as a threat. And one way they dealt with this was by sending undercover agents into the shops, buying books and then arresting people. So this happens, if I remember correctly, in Illinois, Friendly Franks. And Dennis Kitchen, they put together this defense fund to raise money to help defend people so they don't go to jail. 
and they get a prominent First Amendment lawyer to help, and eventually they prevail. And they think, hey, this is a great idea. You know, the comics industry has come together, raised money. Uh, we've been dealing with censorship for decades. Why don't, instead of just doing this every time somebody gets arrested, why don't we form a nonprofit? We'll call it the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund that can fight this on a regular basis. We can educate people, we can raise money for cases when need be, and we can address other legal issues. They did a lot of things that were connected with constitutional rights. So anything that could, that could affect free expression. So that's, that's how it ends up getting started. And they fight some high profile fights over the years. Uh, eventually they end up acquiring the rights to the Comics Code seal in 2010 when the Comics Code Authority uh, decides to fold. When comics come on the scene in the 19th century, but then really, really hit in the 1930s, a, a lot of things have aligned. You had the technology to do mass copying of comics on the cheap. And all of a sudden it becomes this quintessentially democratic art form. We can all draw pictures. We can all you know, write in uh, some of the basic words. We can tell stories in the fullest human way. And we can even use sound effects, pows, app, all that sort of stuff. We can even represent sound. It's just it's an amazing art form. And now as we're moving to more digital, you know, hyper-democratized forms of communication through in the digital age where it's really much cheaper than ever to, to create an image and to distribute it globally, comics provide the template. The fundamental medium that they capture, the fundamental medium and the fundamental form of expression in comics, it's human, it's democratic, it's never going to die. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and produced, recorded, and edited by Chris Maltby. The music is by Maidan. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.